Hello. Hey, uh, George, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Greg. Oh, good. Excellent. The weird thing is I've been very, feeling very anti-structural and liminal while I've been preparing for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, uh, the funny thing is I've typed up all my questions, which is what I do. I've, I've ended up with about 30 of them, I think. But Great. I, yeah, I didn't put them in any structure, as I usually okay, do. Okay, no problem. And the funny thing is you asked me to, uh, uh, if you know this show, um, I usually just talk to somebody for a while before I even play the intro. Um, I guess it's part of the anti-structure of the show. I have no idea. But um, Okay. Uh, let me play the. Let me just play the intro then, and then we'll get into it. Sounds good. I've actually. Have you ever heard the show before? I think I've listened to little parts of of it. Uh, I, I probably have. I've listened to quite a few things, but it's been a while. Okay, I've got three different intros. I usually uh, I pick one for the um, for for s- sort of for the theme of the person, and usually it's the anti ETH one. And I think that's uh-huh. the, I think that's the one I'll play for you. I'll, I'll turn up so you can hear it a little. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, all conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? Okay, uh, there's uh, there's our uh, our normal intro. George, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I'm here. Okay. Uh, I was looking online, and 
I can't find any background on you. Is that because I'm just inefficient or because you just don't want to put any background up? I don't put much background up, but there's a little bit on my website. I worked uh, eight years full-time doing parapsychology research in two different laboratories, Um, three years at the Rhine Research Center in Durham, North Carolina, and five at Psychophysical Research Laboratories uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And that the Princeton, New Jersey lab closed in 1989, and since that time I have been Shifting, uh, instead of experimental parapsychology, I've slowly shifted my interest, and I, for one thing, I have been attending monthly UFO meetings huh. since 1989. Uh-huh. And so I've gone to conferences, presented a number of conferences, and uh, produced uh, a few papers on the UFO topic. Uh, how are you received at these conferences? Uh, generally fairly well, yeah. uh, because they're, um, local primarily. I've spoken at, uh, the Fort Fests a couple times. Oh, okay. Uh, so these are not the nuts and bolts type conferences. Um, uh, some, there was one conference jointly produced with Jim Mosley, uh, that was here in New Jersey. So, uh, yeah, they're in, in the mainstream ufology probably would not be too receptive to what I have to say. Uh, but the local groups generally understand that there's a lot of overlap between psychic phenomena and Bigfoot and UFOs. Now, the high muckety-mucks don't want to hear that, but uh, no. it's commonly known among the people who fill the seats. So... I don't really have any problem with those, you know, with the ordinary folks, and generally it's the experiencers that uh, have found some of my work the most interesting. That's funny because I spoke to a MUFON group about my um, co-creation thing, and I asked the organizers after it was finished. I said, <laughs> "Could you please give me some feedback on this? Because I'm going to present it at a, a larger conference too." And I wanted to make sure that I'd got all the things ironed out of it. And, you know, just the, you know, you're the final stop before I go to the, the, the larger conference, and which I think maybe insulted them. I don't know. Um, and they said that uh, what I'd said was uh, that I shouldn't say it in the way that I'd said it because it would make experiencers feel like I thought they had made things up in their own mind and that, that their experiences were completely imaginary. Not imaginal, but imaginary. Uh-huh. And um, that if it was given in the in the format it was in, I would probably be um, vilified or something. The funny thing is, I went out to dinner, which is what you do, I guess, at some of these places with some informally with some of the audience. They got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, this is this has been my experience. The people that who run the large organizations don't get it at all, or very rarely. Uh, the people sitting in the seats often do. Yeah, it's. I had never encountered that before. Yeah, I, for some reason, I, it had always been. It, well, you know what? I never asked the opinion of the organizers before. So I, maybe that's why. Maybe <laughs> maybe that's why I don't get invited as much as I sh- as I could be. I don't know. Um. So how did you uh, uh working at these institutions, and I guess another exposure you, you've had over the years. Why did the trickster theme come up for you? I mean, how did that start oh, to a, manifest? Oh, oh that, that's a, a really, really good question. Well, there were a, a variety of things. Well, first of all, <clears throat> I started, you know, as I read the literature, and 
when I first got into the field, I read a lot of the historical material as well, as well as some of the modern experimental work. And over and over, fraud and deception were issues in the mediumship of the 19th century when spiritualism was so uh, active. Right. There were lots of accounts of mediums who faked phenomena. Also, magicians played a very prominent role in the 1800s in the rise of spiritualism. Uh, a number of them went on stage and performed spiritualist tricks uh, and did exposés. Yet some of those same people endorsed the reality of the phenomena uh, and even published on that. So the whole issue of trickery was really salient in my mind, and it was certainly encountered throughout the history of parapsychology. The people who do laboratory research often don't want to admit it, but if you go back and read through the literature, there are many, many accounts of tricksters coming into the laboratory. Um, so I got one of the first things I started getting interested in was mentalism and magic uh, back in the 70s when I got into the field. Now, I did perform a little bit when I was a kid, <laughs> so it wasn't completely new to me, but my I had a parallel interest there. I knew to rule out or ordinary means of communication in experiments, you have to rule out fraud and deception. Right. So I started reading that. So the trickster idea, okay, there's some very innate connection here with the paranormal and deception. So that was always in the back of my mind. What's going on here? <clears throat> then, uh, I think late 80s, I'd have to look up the date, there was a very interesting book, a pretty easy read, uh, Synchronicity, Science, Myth, and the Trickster, mm. by uh, Alan Combs and Mark Holland, I believe were the authors. And that brought out the idea that the trickster was very related to synchronicity, uh, which I had not r realized. So I started reading the literature on the trickster. So I think my awareness of trickery in the history of psychical research, was, and that was a topic most researchers really didn't want to talk about. They really didn't want to acknowledge that. Yeah. But it was... It was a central problem. And then this connection with the trickster and synchronicity. Okay, now I know there's something very fundamental here. And so it was that book that really got me started in a big way. And there were one or, there were, there's one other aspect, too, but that's a little bit, maybe we can talk a little bit later. So the, okay. the trickster, and then I started realizing shamans, in earlier cultures were associated with mythological trickster figures. Right. So, so the more I read, the more interconnections I saw. So that's the short answer to that question. <laughs> uh, for the people who haven't read uh, Trickster and the Paranormal and don't know what the trickster is, which is probably nobody listening to this show, but <laughs> what is your definition of the trickster or the trickster archetype or you know, how it manifests? Uh, okay. it, it, traditionally, uh, anyway. Okay, that's a, a kind of a complex question. There are tr uh, the trickster figure is a character type that is found in mythology, literally worldwide. Mm -hmm. There's something like a, a hundred or better uh, that ha who have been identified, and I use sort of a union approach, uh, not completely, but that's a major perspective that I think is very important. Right. And I view the trickster as an archetype, and I define that as a collection or a constellation of characteristics that appear 
often together. And this is a very abstract concept. So things like uh, deception, uh, disruption, tricksters tend to disrupt things, kind of be a bit mischievous. Uh, sexual uh, violation of violation of sexual taboos is very common with uh, trickster figures in mythology and folklore. And also some type of supernatural or paranormal power is uh, associated with tricksters, and tricksters are also marginal figures. They're sort of on the edge of society. They're not completely excluded, but they're looked upon with a bit of suspicion or with a bit of disdain. Okay, they're there. We don't really want to deal with them too much. Okay, we have to, you know, okay, they're around, but they're annoying, and we really would prefer to just disregard them. So... Those types of qualities often cluster together in, and I'm talking very abstractly, you can see this in an individual person, you can see the same thing in small groups. If you look at many of the ghost hunter groups or other uh, paranormal groups uh, that start getting involved in the phenomenon, you see that these don't last very long. There's a disruptive aspect. There's an anti-structural aspect. There's uh, recriminations and accusations of trickery or deception, and also uh, sometimes violation of sexual taboos, you know, have people having affairs outside of marriage, etc., etc. So these kinds of paranormal phenomena are a little, are very different than most other kinds of things one would investigate because they affect people's lives. These characteristics start to take over and manifest in small groups and even in large groups and even in uh, large cultures at times, mm-hmm. especially, especially the disruption and distrust of the, the tricksters tend to distrust authority figures, authority figures tend to distrust tricksters, and the tricksters are something of a subversive element as well. So that's a short answer to the trickster, <laughs> and it really it really takes a while to start thinking about that and looking at examples of tricksters and examples of various groups in, who study the paranormal, whether it's Bigfoot hunters or ufologists or parapsychologists or people involved with near-death experiences and the like, you are likely to see some kind, some aspects of these trickster phenomena manifest. Yeah, it seems like if you are studying something that is generally not mediated but ruled by a trickster, that you can't help but be affected by it. And this comes across very strongly in your book. And also um, Jeff Ritzman has been uh, telling me this for a while. Uh, he actually makes predictions. People say, well, I've got this wonderful group and we're going to go out and hunt ghosts. Um, and he said, I, pre- <laughs> I predict that within six months you will have broken up. And they look at him funny. And then six months later, they come back with their mouths open. <laughs> so I, I've done this quite a number of times myself. Yes, Jeff is a big fan. And yeah, we have some really good we relate stories to each other. Oh, yes, this happens a lot. And uh, Jeff was one of the people to really pick up on this aspect really, really quickly. Uh, but it just, I'm seeing it even today, within the last week, I got emails <laughs> of another group just breaking up with, you know, threats of lawsuits and all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens. Uh, is that because, uh, I, I was, you know, a bigger question is, when you're saying that the you know the, the, the trickster is is kind of vilified, 
that would seem, at least as a re- from a reading of your book, that would seem to be more in a highly structured society or Western society because you spend a great deal of time talking about um, traditional societies or uh, societies that aren't uh, Western or not uh, civilized, or whatever, whatever you want to call it, and that they honor that trickster part and, that's that, and they know where the lines are drawn. Um, but they, they they don't push the trickster away. They just they they give it a place, and it doesn't seem like exactly. people are giving it a place in the society that we live in. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, the trickster is much better understood in those earlier cultures, and frankly, within marginal groups in our society as well. Mm. Uh, in big bureaucratic institutions, it's largely ignored. You are completely correct there. And it's also interesting to see the resurgence of paganism in this country. Uh, if you look at this uh, trickster god Loki, in earlier societies, Loki was was recognized, looked upon, okay, a little bit dangerous and spooky perhaps, but had had definitely a place. In some of the, the pagan groups today, they don't want anyone associated with Loki in their midst. They do not want Loki around. And so there's a real disconnect between some of the earlier understanding and some of the pagan groups, especially the Norse groups, that despise Loki and, and try to exclude him. So the way our culture deals with this stuff is often excluding these types of characters. Yeah, and then, but yeah, and you pointed out uh, that the excluded uh, groups are often uh, honoring the trickster because they that's the place where that the, that archetype or that um that idea finds a home. Um actually Jeff said I should ask you about uh he said some of your latest uh research or writings had to do with marginalized groups such as transgendered people, homosexual, um gay, lesbian and how um, there seem to be a lot of um, people that are involved with the paranormal and, and, and actually some gifted psychics, too, in, in that community. Oh, very much so. In fact, about, about three, I guess it was three years ago or so, um, there was, there, Philadelphia has held a large transgender conference for about 15 years. Mm. And about three years ago, I attended uh, uh, the, for the first time. And there was a young anthropologist who was talking about transgender uh, and anthropology and earlier cultures and the like. At the end of her talk, one of the audience members got up and asked, <clears throat> why are so many transgender people involved with spirituality and fortune-telling? And there was a murmur in the audience. <laughs> it, people really understood that there was something very deeply connected there. Mm-hmm. And the, the young anthropologist didn't have much of an answer, and that's not surprising because this topic is avoided. If she had been trained maybe 30 years ago, she would have been able to answer that question. But today, academics largely avoid that that connection between transgender and spirituality. Now, mind you, I've been going to that conference for about three years, and it's free to the public. It's a wonderful place just to watch people. You've got these six foot five, 250 pound women walking around uh, the 
trans females uh-huh. and some very interesting people to talk to. And they have concurrent sessions, and there are thousands of people who attend these conferences. And there are a number of occult practitioners, people in voodoo, diviners, and the like. It could be almost a mini occult conference. Uh. Uh, And I know a few occult practitioners who are transgender themselves, who have undergone uh, some uh, hormone and surgery uh, for that. Uh, and these are, ex- in my experience, very impressive practitioners. So it's a real interesting group of people, and I don't know of anyone else who's really looking at that. In fact, after the year the young anthropologist presented, I decided I should present something. So I hmm. gave a presentation on transgender and the paranormal. I've also given the presentation at Fortfest. And I'm pl- I, I'm scheduled to give a similar presentation in Lilydale, New York, which is a spiritualist camp oh, yeah. on the western part of New York. And it's a, it's a day-long symposium. I'm one of seven presenters there. So I've had a very strong interest in transgender. You can go back to early spiritualism, and there have been, there were a few mediums who were recognized as gay, and maybe as I think there was one as a herma- was a hermaphrodite. So this connection is very, very interesting to me, and it is very a central part of my theoretical work today. And that has to do, it comes out of some theory of what's called uh, structuralism, which is no longer in vogue in academic uh, humanities and social sciences. There's an area called post-structuralism, which is partly forgotten what structuralism uncovered, and structuralist approaches do address these kinds of uh, issues in some very interesting ways, especially the transgender issue Uh and its relation to the paranormal. Yeah. What did the structuralists propose? Was this the the French group? Yes. It uh, arose in the 1950s and 60s in France. Uh, The primary uh, person was anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss. Oh, yeah. Now, his name is not too well known today, but he was both a member of the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S., as well as Académie Française in France, two very eminent uh, groups, and there is no Nobel in uh, anthropology. But there was a Nobel Nobel laureate, uh, Octavio Paz, who wrote a whole book on Claude Lévi-Strauss. So this guy was a very, very major intellectual influence in the 20th century. And he talked about the idea of binary opposition. Oh, yes. And that has led me into some very interesting areas. And I present... uh, My book covers it... Uh, to some, to a fair degree, but I've made a lot more progress, and I have a lot more new ideas that I've been presenting at conferences. But I haven't really been publishing anything on that. I hope to fairly soon, though. Yeah, the the binary thing is very important too. You you bring it up uh, quite a few times in the book, and that the trickster is, um, I don't know about a mediator between the boundaries, but el- pulls pulls uh, uh, structure towards anti structure um, as kind of a balance. If there's yeah. if there's too much structure, things get um, uh, what did you say um, unbalanced? I mean, uh, you, yeah. you say you know there's a there's a male female, and in our society, the the male has has a greater status. Part of that balance is an un, uneven status, and that the trickster tries to mediate that status to even it out or, or turn it on its head. 
the, the trickster can invert the status, yes. In, in most binary oppositions, one of the elements uh, has greater power, prestige, or privilege. And if the two elements become approximately equal, that gets unstable. That's where things get very ambiguous. Now, you can have an over, one, one of the elements can be overly powerful, and, uh, and that can be uh, a very toxic or destabilizing condition as well. So it, it's a continual interplay be, uh, between the two. And the, Carl Jung pointed out, he was talking about the spirit Mercurius of alchemy, mm-hmm. and pointed out Mercurius is the combination of all opposites. Uh, it's kind of hard to get your head around that, <laughs> but yes, the trickster is very involved in these binary oppositions, and his work on alchemy is uh, the idea of these binaries or dualities is very central to the, uh, the way he approaches the issue of alchemy. So it's uh, these issues have you can trace this back well over a thousand years and into Eastern cultures as well. Mm-hmm. So the idea of opposites and binaries, dualities, and there's a number of other terms that can be used uh, have been thought about uh, for a very long time. And in Western civilization, they've always had sort of a secondary or tertiary role. The, there are other approaches that have dominated and kind of eclipsed this line of thought. This line of thought goes primarily with what's called the Platonist tradition rather than the Aristotelian. And you okay. can find that in Christianity as well. Uh-huh. So, uh, so there's a lot of theoretical work that, that uh, can be done with it, and I've got a lot to, uh, I hope to publish fairly soon. Uh, but it's a very, very different way of thinking. Uh, it, it, it's certainly not anti-scientific because it's very empirical, but the way of thinking about it is very, very different uh, than how most people are trained in the sciences. There is a binary between science and, and art between the left brain and the right brain. Uh, recently, I've been talking to people, and, I, and I've been saying, I think UFO study is not really concentrated on the right brain very much at all, uh, and it might do well to do that. But the thing is, it's inherently difficult to do anything with it that will affect lots of people or lots of people can uh, connect with. It becomes more individual. When anything you find out in that in that realm becomes more of uh, mediated or understood on an individual level, rather than let's all get together in a group and do this, you know, have some sort of uh, study. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's an interesting idea. Um, the whole idea of the personhood and the like. Yes, I do. I think you're onto something with that. I think it deserves a further elaboration and. In contemplation, because there is something very personal about these experiences, and they have typically very dramatic effects for many people. Yeah, uh, and they cannot be transferred quite as easily to others. There are small groups who can do this, but as as you get larger groups, may be more difficult, especially in Western society. Mm-hmm. How so did you... I hope you you continue thinking about this and developing that idea. Thank you. Um... How did you move from an interest in um, parapsychology to the UFO groups? And those aren't just your only uh, interests. I'm sure you're interested in other paranormal groups and issues, too. But why the UFO thing? Uh, Well, back in the 
mid to late 80s, things were getting in the UFO field were really getting very uh, hot. You know, there was a lot of Bud Hopkins was publishing, Whitley Strieber was publishing, and I'm about an hour outside of New York, so New York City was a real hot spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Keel at that time uh, was running the New York 14 Society, and I think I went to the either the first or second meeting of that group and got really intrigued. And so I was pretty much a regular member, and the Fortians uh, are open to all sorts of approaches and all sorts of phenomena. And there were several academics. Michael Grosso was a member of that group. He recently published a book on uh, Joseph of Copertino, a saint who levitated a number of times. Mm -hmm. And he had a long-term interest in psychic phenomena and, and wrote books on the paranormal as, and was involved with the UFO topic as well. Another scholar there was a guy named Peter Reshevitz, who was the head of the liberal arts department at the Juilliard School. And then there were a lot of other people who were quite knowledgeable. John Keel would always make these pronouncements. And uh, I never, for a while, I didn't know what to make of Keel. For instance, <laughs> he would say, uh, I like them. And then we got to be friendly later, uh, much friendlier later on. And after the New York 14 Society went defunct, we'd talk on the phone every month or two, um, yeah. you know, for 20 minutes or an hour, whatever it was. Right. And one of the things that Keel would, would say, and I kind of pressed him, we'd say, well, ufology is a lot like the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> <laughs> and it took me several years of studying liminality and the trickster. Keel was absolutely right. Yeah, there and there are fundamental connections there at uh, that you can show with a structural analysis. So, and that's a little bit beyond what we can do today. But Keel had these insights, and although he couldn't fully articulate why, he was right. And as I dug into the more academic work, my gosh, Keel understood this. You know, I had you know I was sort of a fan of Keel because he had these wild books, right and he recognized these phenomena blur together. Mm-hmm. You don't separate the UFOs from the psychic phenomena. One of my examples that I, of, that I use in, in my lectures these days is back uh, in the early Stanford Research Institute work with Yuri Geller. Well, Geller was a psychic metal bender. He'd be... Some of the younger people probably won't be familiar with his name, but people who've been around for a long time will. He yep. was a very prominent psychic in the 70s, uh, made a lot of money. The BBC recently, a few years ago, did a big uh, uh, documentary on him, and one of the people that uh, who was interviewed was Benjamin Netanyahu, endorsing Uri Geller. Anyway, during the testing out at SRI, uh, for Geller's psychic uh, abilities, Jacques Vallée was stationed on the roof of SRI to watch for UFOs. <laughs> so, I haven't heard yeah, that story. So, so government scientists all, all 45 to 50 years ago understood that there was some connection between psychic ability and UFOs. Yeah, and of course later he said he was communicating with some sort of extraterrestrial civilization. Oh, yes. And that yes. that whole thing with um uh uh, uh I can't remember the name of the of the uh parapsychology researcher and the, oh, probably Puharich? Yes, Andre Puharich. Yeah. Um I had an uh a 
contentious, sort of contentious discussion with somebody once. And he said, well, and this goes back to the trickery thing. Geller was caught um, tricking and and, uh, performing sleight of hand more than once. Therefore, his uh, conclusion was that you can't trust anything Geller does ever. And I said, well, he went around the country. There's a book, I think, called The Geller Effect. Maybe it's not The Geller Effect. But yeah, there's there, a, there are several, but yeah. that's one of them. Yeah. yeah. One of the books I have is basically, I don't know, 20 or 30 studies all over the United States sometime in the 1970s when Geller was touring. Mm-hmm. He would walk into mm-hmm. uh, institutions and, um, you know, academic and private institutions. They would test him. And they would, either, you know, the book is either filled with this doesn't mean anything or this is interesting or we can't believe this happened in scientific papers. So I pointed this out to him and he said, well, then they must have been they, they must have either been completely fooled by him or uh, they were in on it with him and, and trying to fool the rest of the, the uh, you know, trying to fool the public or each other or whatever. And I found this kind of amazing because it either means you're not paying attention to what was in there or you have a very strong prejudice, I hate to use that word, against listening to something like that and considering it as possibly important, viable, or true. Yes, Uh, and it's somewhat understandable because there has been so much trickery, but in the BBC documentary, Geller admitted outright he would prefer people not to know one way or the other and keep it very ambiguous, (laughs) and I go into... I go into my book a little bit on that idea, and in many ways, that probably is a little bit of a safer route for Geller. If uh, people thought that he was spying on them, he might become a real target. But if it's just trickery, uh, he might not. On the other hand, if people, if he wants, you know, to consult and work for rich people and make a bunch of money it would be good for people to believe that he was real. So it can work either way, and he can play it either way. Geller is a very sharp character, uh, and there have been magicians who have endorsed the reality of Yuri's psychic phenomena. So uh, even in the magic community, there is considerable dispute. Yeah, uh, the funny thing is, uh, a few years ago, even up to very recently, I thought that magicians as a rule, as a whole, as a group, we're very much against anything paranormal or psychic or whatever you want to call it, mainly because what you find in most uh, areas of public discourse is the loudest people uh, tend to become the voice of whatever community they're from, whether everybody agrees with them or not. And then I, you know, I read in your book, I talk to Jeff, I talk to stage magicians, and some of them tell me, no, actually, a lot of magicians, one, they do actually think that some of this is going on, and two, have encountered it themselves yeah. in the midst of doing yeah. their in the midst of doing their trickery. Sometimes something paranormal and synchronistic happens, and it makes and it continues to happen. It makes them sit up and take notice. That's right, and in fact, a number of them have been involved in psychical research and endorsed it. In fact, on my website, I have a paper that I published in the Linking Ring, which is the magazine of the International Brotherhood of Magicians. And I documented the historical magicians who have endorsed the reality of psychic phenomena. And I've got quite a number of them. Anyone can download that paper. Just go to tricksterbook.com and go to publications, uh, and you, you can people can download a PDF of that. It's a two-part article. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, some of the most eminent magicians in history have endorsed the reality of the phenomena. 
So, uh, yeah, the, you're absolutely right in saying, yes, the loudest ones get the attention. That's why people think that magicians are generally antagonistic to those claims, yeah. and they're not. No, they're not. And if they're not antagonistic to them, or we say maybe there's something to it, the loud people will shout them down, which (laughs) happens in in any area. But uh, that's another question. Why does does the opposition to even looking at some of this stuff, why is it so strong amongst people, amongst some people like, you know, Psycop? Are they still a viable force? I guess they are. Well, they're called something else now. Right. They're now called Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, but uh, they... Well, if you look at the paranormal or supernatural, just historically, there's a, there's a response to it. People, there's a fascination aspect, and there's also something of a repulsion or a fear. Mm-hmm. And those two kind of are intention. But if you... you know, I've had many cases where a small group was started, and we were doing some table-tipping experiments, and we were starting to get some kind of inter- very interesting phenomena. Some of the people were intrigued, and especially when the phenomena started getting stronger, we, there was one parapsychologist I, I worked with who was absolutely freaked out when things started happening and did not choose to participate later on. Mm. When the phenomena gets stronger, people will have this more repulsive, almost a visceral reaction to avoid it. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> I, think the, I think these phenomena can be a bit dangerous. Uh, to give you just a few examples, uh, I have done a number of investigations of poltergeists and hauntings over the years. Now, I have no idea of the exact number. I think it's probably between... Oh, 20 and 40, but it might be more like 30 to 60. I don't think I've done a hundred. I mean, this is going out and, uh, and talking to people maybe for a few hours, maybe doing a several day investigation, even writing it up a whole, a whole variety of different levels of investigation. But if I say I take about maybe about 60 such investigations, well, in three of those investigations, People later went to prison, and two of them for murder. And in a fourth case, there was a murder later committed at the investigation site. And in a fifth case, uh, almost certainly involved incest. Mm -hmm. So these phenomena can emerge around some types of pathology. There may be a danger here. If you look at uh, Elizabeth Targ, who was the daughter of Russell Targ, she died of the very disease she was studying via psychic healing. So these phenomena have always been recognized as a little bit dangerous. There have always been, in earlier societies, people recognized only certain people dealt with these to a great degree, and those people undertook certain rituals and purification uh, methods and the like. So there may be a reason people do almost automatically avoid these things or get a little bit interested and then pull back. So the skeptical reaction is probably some type of defensive reaction and in some sense might even be healthy for many people. 
and I don't. Most parapsychologists and researchers don't really want to acknowledge that. Mm. But if they would get out in the field and deal with more of the poltergeist experiencers, uh, it can get very disconcerting at times. So I am not quite so negative on the skeptics as I once was. <laughs> I, I do think I, I do think they're rather misguided, but. If you look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, well, you're not supposed to practice clairvoyance. Uh, that's forbidden. Even psychic healing is uh, very definitely discouraged. So uh, there have always been prohibitions and taboos associated with these phenomena. And I think that's important to recognize. Now, there are people who are called to work in those fields and work with these types of energies and these types of phenomena. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. But often those people live a little bit apart from society. Shamans often lived on the edge of the village, for instance. They were a little bit different and recognized so. Uh, If you look at monks and nuns, well, they live in monasteries a bit apart from people. Right. And it's among the monastics of these kinds of people what we find the most, some of the most striking paranormal phenomena ever reported. So I, I'm not totally antagonistic to the skeptics and the debunkers. They do serve a role in a sense. I think it's in some sense anti-scientific, uh, mm-hmm. but it may, may be useful for people just, okay, there are reasons people kind of shy away from this when the phenomena really get a little bit strong. Yeah, well, they don't want the whole society blowing up, uh, at least in a traditional right. society. Um, if, right. that, if that part takes over, you've got liminality and anti-structure everywhere, and that doesn't help, that doesn't help, help people live relatively uh, uh, sedate and uh, non-problem-filled lives. <laughs> that's right. And in ritual uh, circumstances in earlier societies, that was very constrained. There was a certain time set aside for that, and the shaman would mm. lead that and kind of mediate and uh, allow people to... The society sometimes would go kind of wild, but then there would be additional rituals, and that time period would be closed off. Mm-hmm. So it, it could be acknowledged, but okay, in its time and place only. Yeah, I, I, for some reason, I'm going to be in um, New Orleans next week, and uh, Mardi Gras comes up. You know ah, that that, uh-huh. that that idea that or or the yeah. first when you mentioned it, I thought of that Star Trek episode where the, everybody comes into that town and goes wild just to let off steam for a couple of weeks and do whatever they want, uh, all kinds of transgressions, and then suddenly it stops and they go back to everybody knows they have to go back to what they're doing. And yes. something you pointed out in your book is that the, in a lot of societies. The initiatory ritual from adolescence to adulthood involves transgression of boundaries, too. Absolutely. And the, the theorists of uh, ritual go into that in some depth. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very well acknowledged and found in cultures all across the globe. Yeah, I think you pointed out that they exist to demarcate boundaries between yes. be, between the anti-structure and the structure, or in between the, or you live in the liminal for a while so that you can integrate it a little bit better into the society. Yes, yes. It's a the liminal state is, a, is typically a transition state. You, you may be moving from one to another, but it's very chaotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, if you have a job in New York City and you decide to move to the West Coast, well. Uh, when you're in New York, you probably know pretty much where you're going to go, where you're going to eat, what you're going to eat. 
Uh, but then you pack up your stuff and you travel across the country. Well, you don't know where you're going to stop. You don't know where you're going to eat. And mm-hmm. your life is very different than anything else. It's a transition period. Then you get to the West Coast and you start settling in and you get into a more routine type of existence. Uh, and one of the things that uh, the book Sci- uh, Synchronicity, Science, Myth, and the Trickster talked about is travel. And, mm, uh, yeah. Her- Hermes is the god of travelers. And that's a transition kind of state. And God of merchants. And in earlier cultures, merchants would have to travel uh, to sell their wares. And they were more associated with tricksters than the ordinary people. So oh, their lives were more disruptive. And, and when things are more chaotic, there's more chance for synchronicity. And so these things all tie together. But those don't work when you've got a, a very organized society. People have to fulfill their roles. Mm-hmm. When, when, when you have liminal periods for earlier societies, people went outside the roles. Those roles no longer controlled how they lived or, or governed. Yeah. Things, things changed temporarily. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, the, the, I think about, as you say that, um, about travel, uh, a lot of UFO incidents happen when people are traveling, when they're driving. I yes, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Yeah, they're going from one place, place to another. And then uh, you probably talked about this with, this with Jeff, but he pointed out to me, yeah, when people are having marital strife or they're moving or they're remodeling the house, suddenly things start happening that didn't happen. And then when they finish with it, it's, it goes, he, he says that test stuff tends to go away. And he and other people I've talked to, they, they move between periods of being very interested in, the, and bef- before they go nuts, I think they have their own internal thermostat or whatever you want to call it. Before things get too nuts, um, he suggested do something very routine for a while to try to stave that off and balance things out again. Yeah, Jeff and I have had a number of conversations along that line, uh, and I think that works. I don't know if it works for everyone, but I think it's generally a healthy way to, uh, to do it. After years of people saying, you should really talk to George, uh, I was, <laughs> and t- to be honest, it was intimidating. I said, I don't know, I don't want to talk to George, he's going to think I'm an idiot. But I was talking to Shannon Taggart recently, and she finally said, you know, just, just call him, you know, that it, it, it'll be fine. And what her work is with, is with the spiritualist um, doing, that, doing her photography, and she actually told me about uh, other spiritualist communities, uh, more modern ones, who she says either don't know about and or reject the tradition of spiritualism. They don't actually recognize or care that there was a spiritualist tradition very heavily in the, from the mid-19th to the early 20th century. But the funny thing is that she says she goes to these events, spiritualist events, and there are, she says, a great deal of the people at these things are grieving mothers. And, mm-hmm. and the, the reason was, I think she talked to me about this, is that, or uh, I can't remember what I was talking to you, maybe Jeff again, but he was saying, you'll go to a funeral and, and, and a parent or a loved one or somebody will, will kind of just sit near the grave for the rest of, you know, for the entire ritual, meaning the, the funeral. And those people tend to become obsessed with the paranormal stuff and the spiritualist stuff, and they don't move on. The rest of the people all went and sat down. They had a meal. They reintegrated with each other and whatever they were doing, and they're fine with it. But the people that wouldn't let the death go, they're kind of stuck in this liminal state for maybe forever. Yes, I don't know. I haven't 
been to that many funerals, so I, I can't comment with personal experience, but that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and yes, maybe the funeral wasn't enough. Maybe they needed to have a longer period of grieving. But yes, if you're going to be healthy, you've got to come out of that. Mm-hmm. And those people may, are probably more likely to have uh, after-death communications with loved ones and other entities perhaps as well. Yeah. Uh, their lives can become a little more difficult, for sure. You had me read the book in an unstructured way, which actually was actually pretty good. Um, oh, good. <laughs> because uh, what you're talking about, I'm, I'm automatically, because of my background and I guess my personality and people I've met and what I'm attracted to, it automatically just it pushes all my buttons. I was reading, saying, yes, yes, exactly, yes. And I'm surprised I haven't read, uh, read through the book completely up to now. Because well, I've, I've read, heard about read, it for years. I've been reading your book, and I could see, oh, there's all sorts of similarities. Uh, and the types of things you describe are very, very parallel to the things I talk about. So, but yes, it, it's hard to put this into some kind of organized structure or to go through it. And the book, yeah, I tell people, skip around in it. Find out, just read a few sentences. If the sentences grab you, keep reading. If not, flip to another chapter to find out something that maybe you have experience with and does this make sense to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I read it, I tried to write it so almost every chapter was pretty much independent. I do recommend people either read the introduction or the conclusion section first and then skip around. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, I kind of, you know, I had looked at your book and said, okay, this is what you, and had listened to you talk. So I figured some of the chapters would probably be more useful for you to read first than others. And, and for it, that same, ex, your experiences are likely different than many, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend the same reading strategy. But I'm glad you, I figured the chapters that I had recommend would be uh, pretty resonant with your, your experiences and your understanding. Oh, yeah, they were. Why did you ask for my birth date? Uh, basically, I wanted to figure out what you knew, uh, what you would be familiar with. And I also am interested in the birth, generally birth years of people who get into the field. For instance, I was born in uh, late 1951, and there, some, well, 20 years ago at a parapsychology conference, we sat around, a group of us, and sort of plotted out birth dates. And there were quite a few people who were very active in the field who had birthdays quite close to my own, within, you know, within a year or so, mm-hmm. a pretty big bump. So I suspect that there are certain people, because of when they are born and they have common experiences, they're a little bit more likely to become interested in this field, and other birth years are probably less likely to uh, uh, develop a strong interest. So I'm just kind of interested in, in periodicities of that. For instance, uh, Jeffrey Kripal, I think, was born a year before you were, mm-hmm. and he's become quite a uh, prominent figure in the field. And there are a few others that were born in the early 60s mm-hmm. who have be- become particularly active. Now, I don't know if, I don't put a lot of stock in astrology, but there is something that there are certain periods where interest in these uh, fields peak. So that's why I was interested. And also, oh, okay. just to communicate you, if I had to refer to something, should I exp- explain it in more detail, or would I, I could read? I see what other, you mean. We expect you to know. I would expect you to know quite a few things uh, if you were born in, in 1963. So, uh huh. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, when I think of people ask me what I think of astrology, and I say, 
I think it is a correspondence between that are you know artificially drawn between what he, what the human experience is and the periodicity of things going on in in the heavens. Um, yeah. That there, there is a periodicity in the way we do things, and there's a periodicity, and obviously in the way that the the stars and the planets work. So I don't, you know, people make the mistake. I think that they think there's some sort of direct, um, like the stars are influencing us. But I, I don't. Uh, that's not my model. Yeah, same here. Same here. Um. Yeah. Well, you talk about birthdays and birth dates, and people. Uh, the, is the paranormal attracting people that are drawn to its unregulated nature? I mean, I've got everybody I know that's heavily into it are anti-authoritarian. They're uh, the best ones are quite creative, and they laugh a lot. Yeah, that's been sort of my experience. If you can't laugh, you're you're not going to last very long. Yeah, <laughs> if I suspect you'll go a little nutsy. One of my heroes is Jim Mosley, who put out Saucer Smear. Huh, that was one <laughs> of my other questions. Like, There's court jesters in in these that you talked about. The jester, you know, was Mosley the people called him that the court jester of ufology. But I, I think they were very being very profound without knowing it. Oh, that, that's right. In, in fact. Uh, uh, Tim Beckley put out a book in tribute to Jim Mosley, and I contributed a chapter to that. I did, too. Uh, I have it. <laughs> and and I was Mosley as Trickster, I think was titled. And, yes, he was very much a trickster figure. Uh, also had a wonderful sense of humor mm-hmm. and just uh, really, really fun to hang out with and party with. So And he would have these <laughs> fabulous stories he could tell. So I, I really do miss Jim uh, <laughs> a whole lot. I do too. The the I think the story I told, and this has nothing to do with anything, but he called me once and he said, I knew a woman a long time ago, I guess it was a girlfriend he picked up in Peru when he was down there grave hunting. And he said, I haven't talked to her in years, but I think she lives here. And he gave me an address. And I went there and the woman was there and she was scared of wow. me. She, would, she wouldn't come to the door uh, hmm. for a while. And I hung out there and she, she had... Um, you know, she was the. T- she, there were like ten cats hanging around there. She turned into an old cat lady. Uh huh. And we knocked on the. My wife and I went down there. We knocked on the door, and nothing happened. I was like, "Let me try." And then I saw a, a drape move. So I think she was looking at me. So I went and stood away from the door for a minute, talked to my wife a bit, and then I came back and knocked again softly, and just stood there, um, backed away from the door, and just stood there. And eventually, she came and opened the door. Just to show uh-huh. that I was I wasn't trying to be you know I wasn't a salesman I wasn't going to do I was trying to look as unthreatening <laughs> as possible. She kind of mm-hmm, cracked the mm-hmm. door up and she said, yes I said are you and I can't remember her name because Jim Mosley's trying to get in touch with you and she opened the door and her face lit up. She's, ah, and she's and I spent the next two hours with her telling me about what it was like you know when she first met Jim and she said oh he was so oh wow ha- oh he was so handsome and I was thinking I don't think it's Jim Mosley as being handsome but I guess to her she he was uh, after a couple hours I said I had a cell phone with me at the time you know old kind and I said do you want to talk to Jim and she could not believe that I would be able to get and she talked to Jim Mosley for the first time in probably 20 something years great and I asked, I asked Jim, I said, why did you want to get in touch with her? And he said, I wanted to put her in my will. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and they hadn't talked in years. They hadn't, they hadn't spoken in years. So I guess I, there was some kind of unknown love affair he had had with this Peruvian woman. I think he dragged her back here with him. And then they just lost huh. touch somehow. So that's just a little known part of his life that uh, 
people don't know about. And he was, it made me very happy that he was so happy he could get back in touch with her. He put me back on the phone, you know, she put me back on the phone with him and he was like, oh God, thanks, Greg. I've been looking for her for years. This is amazing. And so I don't know what they talked about after that, but they got back in touch. And that, that, oh, that's great. Yeah. What? Well, that's a great story. Anyway. Do you think the other communities, like uh, the cryptozoology community, the ghost hunting community, all that, do they have their jesters? Because I'm not in those communities, so I don't know. I'm well. The ghost hunting community is very diverse, and in paranormalsocieties.com listed something like uh, over two thousand ghost hunting groups in the U.S. Huh, and. I don't know of any like central organization that encompasses most of those. So I don't know if they're, it's a very different structure. And I am not that familiar with the cryptozoological groups uh, or the, I don't know of anything. Ufology is relatively small in comparison. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and Mosley has been around, was around for many, many decades. So those people kind of rise. With the ghost hunting, I don't see the same kind of leadership or organizations that have uh, been found. I think they're more anti-structural in some sense, because when you go out ghost hunting, there is some chance of encountering real phenomena. Therefore, if you get real phenomena, the anti-structure is likely to go up and things are likely to dissipate. Mm -hmm. The groups are likely to break up. I think that's a, to a little bit less extent true in cryptozoology, people who go out and, and try to encounter things. Uh, ufology, you can do somewhat, uh, be somewhat more armchair, perhaps. You're almost forced into that because it's, it's a lot more, it's a lot rarer to, be, to have a UFO experience happen when you want it to, whereas you can go to a haunted house. It's, it's spatially contained. Or you can go to where yes, Bigfoot exactly. lives. It's spatially contained. UFOs are not. That's right. That's right. So uh, I don't know of similar trickster figures who are known at a national level in in those kinds of groups. Uh Now, uh, if you look at the skeptics groups, well, James Randi certainly could be considered a trickster. You can't uh, fully trust some of his conclusions, and Uh he has certainly made pretty serious errors. And he is a magician, and magicians (laughs) often have sort of a trickster-type archetype. Yeah. operating right so uh, and magicians themselves are pretty much overt tricksters and it will are willing to admit as much yeah so i think there you could see uh uh the trickster archetype manifest but it's a good question i i will have to keep a little bit more alert to uh the uh the leadership of these uh <laughs> groups in the ghost groups and whatnot yeah uh you spoke about Henri Bergson in one of your chapters, and I like the quote. Um, what did it say? He describes something as creative and comic it w- if it was able to belong to two different series of events and is capable be- of being interpreted in two entirely different meanings at the same time. And I was thinking, oh my God, that's ufology. Now, did you? Is that in my book? Yes, yes, it is. Oh, I'd, for- I'd forgotten all about that. Oh, thank you. I, uh, I'll yeah. have to look at that. No, but he's right, and it, that's relevant to some of the things I'm thinking about these days, so I'll have to go back and look. Yeah. That, but it, but you're, you're right. Go ahead. The, the, these phenomena, can, you know, there is a comedic element. Or there often is. 
but there's also it's there's there's other things operating as well and other interpretations. Yeah, and so, I'm, uh, thank I'm, you. I'm thinking of that, and the other thing I thought of when I when I pulled that quote from the book is that is the essence of humor. You've got two different, yes. yeah, because he said it, it's comic. But the thing is, you have the two binary opposites are things that don't normally belong together, and you've connected them with the joke in a non-logical uh, way. There is a wisdom within that joke, if it's a good joke. Um, yes. But if you explain the joke, or try to, it makes it not funny anymore, and the right. numinousness of the, the gnosis of getting the joke is destroyed. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I'm thinking of, you know, if you're trying to explain any of these paranormal things in, an, in a normal way, you're trying to explain the joke and it ruins it. <laughs> That's very interesting. I hadn't thought of it in quite those terms. I'm going to, have, I'm going to spend some time on that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, this is why I, you know, I enjoy talking to you and your book so much is because you will say something and my, I have to stop reading so that my brain can wander for a few minutes to try and ingest what you've said and interpret it in the way that you know, makes sense to me or that is, is fun or interesting to me. And it happened multiple times in the book, so I, I thank you for that. Yeah, a number of people have commented on that, and I'm very gratified with that because that's how, when I get a really good book, I will read and then something will grab me. Okay, I really have to stop and think now. Mm-hmm. And then, then just walk away. And uh, but no, thank you. That's, that's for me. That's a very uh, high compliment. The best um, things, uh, movies, works of art, uh, uh, academic books, and all that—they uh, do that. Also, I noticed another weird thing about, especially UFO books and paranormal books too. It seems that, and tell me if you've noticed this too. It seems like a lot of people that write one book on it and then disappear are some of the best ones. That's often true. Yeah, I'm thinking, thinking back. Yeah. Or they, not disappear, but they don't write another one on it. Angels and Aliens, the one Keith Thompson wrote that book, it, never, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. never wrote another yeah. one about you. I interviewed him. He was a great guy. He was a lot of fun. We had a great talk. But that's, you know, um, uh, oh, what's the one? Um, now I can't think of the name. Big, thick book that was a, a UFO book. It was kind of the ancient astronaut thing. Let's let's see what, what's another one I can think. Yours, obviously, because that's the book you're known for, and you haven't written really any other books on the paranormal or UFOs or anything like that. And it, it seems, and uh, what's another one? Jim Brandon's book, um, uh, Rebirth of Pan. Ah, uh huh. Another one I recommend is Dennis Stillings' uh, Cyber Biological Study of the Imaginal Component in the UFO Contact Experience. Now that was an edited work, but he yeah. had quite a bit of commentary in there. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I, I recommend that to people all the time. Also, it's the longest title in ufology, I think. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> yeah, that's been a foundational text for me, for me for quite a while, although I don't agree with everything in it, just like the um, Reframing the Debate book that uh, Robbie, Robbie Graham put out and that I wrote an essay in. So. Right, right. By the way, if I, it, this is an interview with you, but I, I, you said you were reading my book. If you have any questions about anything I wrote, we can talk about that stuff, too. It's, it's a conversation. If you haven't heard the show too much, basically it's a conversation. I never really have a question-answer, question-answer, if I can help it, um, because that's just boring. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I may have a question later on here for you, so well, let's see how this progresses, though. Okay. 
Another idea I've had, and I don't know if it's because I started reading your book a few years ago and just very slowly went through it until, you know, I got through a lot more of it before our talk here, but I had this idea to break up large UFO groups and just concentrate on using very small groups who have a very specific focus. And then when that focus is is taken care of, they um, take very detailed notes. They tell everybody what they did, write it all up, and then they break up. Um. That may or may not work. The, the problem is, the, and, and I'm seeing this even more so within parapsychology, is access to the literature. Uh, if one tries to find what was done 100 years ago, even 50, even 40 years ago, it's very, very difficult for students to get access to the books and the journals. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you would think that you know, with all the digitizing, well, that's been done. But in parapsychology, and uh, uh, that's it's very very difficult. Uh, the SPR, that's the Society for Psychical Research in Britain, has put up very very high paywalls. It's uh, to to get access to their information. I think that's very very unfortunate. The Journal of Parapsychology uh, is very difficult to get, especially the issues a few decades ago. And it's very, very important work there. The American Society for Psychical Research is pretty much defunct, uh, and it's very difficult to get that. So the problem is you, you need to have some type of continuity. Now, for all the problems MUFON has had mm-hmm. uh, at one time, and I, I don't know if all of the back issues of their journals are still available online easily or not. It's more of a magazine, but it's still useful data. Yeah. Uh, so if one group uh, were to just publish something, it could get lost, uh, you know, 10 years down the road, and people would not even be aware of its existence. If it's published in, like, an archival journal, it's probably more likely to be remembered and uh, built upon. But again, the whole... We've had, like, 130 uh, year going on 140, 135 years, something like that, of organized psychical research. And one would hope one could build on that. But if those reports and journals are not available, nothing can be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to be starting over. So it's anti-structural. Now, there is a group, uh, Archives for the Unexplained in Sweden, that is doing a lot of good work. But... Uh, the problem is there is amount, a certain amount of organization that is needed, if only to preserve what has been done in the past. And I'm seeing that is being really threatened uh, right now, and it has been for a few decades. You mean the, the, uh, the cataloging like that and, and, and keeping an archive? Well, well, keeping an archive and so people can cite that work and build mm-hmm. on it, you know, like, individual scholars like i know some very good thinkers and people very ambitious and uh but they're young they don't know what's been done in the past and the old timers make very little effort to make that available uh and i think that's one of the biggest problems the field faces right now is the old material which has some very innovative ideas but they're largely forgotten now and they're very difficult to access Mm -hmm. So working on your own, okay, you can, you can get stuff out online. I, I recommend people try to put um, good material on academia.edu, for instance. Right. I don't, you know, that may not last uh, for a long time either. But uh, these, the problem is 
on a long-term basis, what can we look back on? What have we learned in the past? Mm-hmm. And I'm convinced there's a huge amount of data and theory that could be very valuable today that is being overlooked. Yeah, that's true. People, well, this is a problem anywhere. You you have uh, somebody say, look at this incredible thing that I just found out. And it's been, it, it was discovered 100 years ago, and it's been studied, you know, periodically for the last 100 years, and they don't even realize it. And it's a uh, right. It, they've they've wasted their time when they can't. They could have built on it and and gone forward. But my idea was that uh, the well, I didn't even think of it in this way. But the anti structure of a small group that only does one thing and then move and then breaks up and moves on is a way to kind of and I have a T shirt called that says this: mimic the obliqueness of the subject because you can get a little bit. I think you can um, dig a little bit deeper into what it is by not being so what obsessed with it over a long period of time to the point where it it turn it it becomes anti-structural and turns into uh, uh, unrestricted chaos where people start leaving or sleeping with with each other or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I, I like your idea about you know temporary groups and some of the seance groups that I have been involved in were very temporary and we got some pretty interesting results pretty quickly and then uh, these were with students and the, the term ended and everyone went their own way so i think your idea is uh, right on uh, how do we capture that and how do we we save that information but i think uh, to facilitate stronger results i think your idea is great yeah well the, the point was to do this and document it very carefully so that other people could either you know reproduce it so they can say, look, this is reproducible, and it actually is a real thing that happens. Two, so somebody can have a personal experience. You can read 100 books on the paranormal, but until you experience it yourself, it's, it remains academic. But that's the tough part, because you, transferring experience to somebody is far more difficult than just having them read a book about it. And I thought the more people that could experience something directly greater the acceptance would be or the greater understanding would happen or whatever you want to call it good i, I basically agree uh, on the other hand you, you oh you can tear me down to, go ahead <laughs> no 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 just, just to think about it a little bit more deeply if you think about documentation mm-hmm. well to document something carefully and thoroughly well that requires experience and right. in laboratories, I see this over and over and over. People come into the field and do parapsychology experiments, and they make serious errors that they, they're completely unaware of because there are real subtleties in methodology and statistics. So it's a real tricky situation. If you, get, if you have people with real uh, experience and understand the, the subtleties, mm-hmm. well, they're gonna ha- it's going to take a while for them, you know, several years to learn that. I know that, having read through the journals myself and seen see what happens with other people. So, yeah, it, it's, if, uh, maybe there's some compromise to having a few over, people overseeing things and commenting. Uh, that would require something of a structure. <laughs> It does require a structure, but the structure, everybody knows the structure is going to be broken up uh, at some point in the not too distant future, which I thought was kind of a a check against things, you know, moving, you know, running off into the ether or becoming, uh, you know, useless. I I think it's a a great idea. Implementing it, we'll have to kind of think about it. There's a whole whole bunch of great ideas everywhere. It's just the implementation (laughs) of them are are a little bit more difficult than talking about them, but uh, I'd like to move ahead with that. 
As far as large groups are concerned, I thought it was very interesting that you um, discussed how Fate magazine survived for so long and, and still survives. Yes, yes. And it's run by an individual. Uh, you know, Phyllis Galdi was running. I'm not sure if she still is, but primarily r- by them rather than a big corporation. Mm-hmm. And she, I know Phyllis had a very, very strong personal interest in this, as did the Fullers. Yeah. Uh, and so, I didn't realize uh, that they had um, very heavily skeptical articles, articles in there. I didn't. I guess I didn't real, read it carefully enough to see those things because you're just like, okay, I'm interested in this and this. Oh, Robert Schaefer, I don't want to, you know, or uh, what mm-hmm. a, who, uh, Martin Gardner or something. Oh, I'm not going to read Martin Gardner. Maybe I should have. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, and even Phil Class mm-hmm. uh, pu- pu- published in there. Yeah. Uh, now, most of it were, you know, some true believers or people a little bit uh, more gullible than they should, but others who were reasonable and others who were skeptical. Yes. Uh, People often didn't realize that. I think I think Jerry Clark first published a list of skeptics who had uh, published in Fate magazine, and hmm. I, I quoted it. And Marcello Chuzzi, I think, was able to add to that a bit as well. So, uh, yeah, Fate uh, is a is a very interesting resource. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's uh, okay for scientists and academics to comment on the paranormal, but not okay to accept that any of it might be true or worthy of serious study? Well. <laughs> I mean, I think this goes back to the structure and anti-structure, and you oh know, yeah, yeah. Uh, the whole these phenomena do not survive long in among bureaucrats, people with in large structured institutions. You just don't find it there. If you look at government, industry, academe, and religion, those are major institutions or groups in our society today. Mm-hmm. Where do you find practitioners? Well, I know corporations that use psychics, but they're not on the payroll. Uh, most mainstream churches do discur- they accept prayer, uh, they ex- but some of the even mainline Protestants, well, is prayer simply psychological? Um, this is hi- historically uh, big institutions do not engage in these phenomena. Now, I know a number of police departments that use psychics. However, there is no psychic on the payroll, right. and they often will deny using psychics at all. In fact, I've been one with, I knew one psychic out in L.A., a psychologist, and who worked with the police departments, and she was out on one case, came home and listened to a newscast, and the police department denied ever using psychics. So there is a real stigma. These phenomena are taboo. These uh, use of these things are have a stigma attached. If one is associated with uh, these phenomena and interested in these phenomena, one will suffer uh, consequences in their professional career. And this has been happening for well over 100 years. Mm-hmm. Do you think so, if the, oh go ahead I'm sorry no, no go ahead do you think if the stigma re, is removed that's a th- that would be a good thing I think the stigma is inherent yeah. I, I think we'll, it's always been there the taboos have always been recognized this is not going to change mm-hmm. the stigma may be lessened for a while but the people who think that they can remove the stigma I think are seriously mistaken. <laughs> they perhaps don't understand what they are dealing with. 
Yeah, the dynamics of of what's going on between a structured and an anti-structured, uh, uh, and the, that the the balance between the two is is what's important, and the moving of the balance back and forth, which I didn't really think about or realize until I had gone through uh, Trickster and the Paranormal, uh, that this stuff needs to happen, and this is it, it, and it's good actually, and the struggle between the two sides is normal and should go on, and that's how things progress. Um, not when one yeah. one side or the other wins, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the creative types are going to be inherently a bit marginal. They're going to be thinking differently. They're going to be a bit subversive. Uh, when you're creative, almost by definition, it has to be new and different. Mm-hmm. That it thereby will undermine or challenge the status quo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just the nature of things. That's the human condition. Yeah, well, there's a bigger question here. Um, about ignoring this trickster uh, uh, archetype and element that uh, when you talk about uh, how politics seems to be moving towards authoritarianism today everywhere. Yes. And, you know, Uh, is that because of, is that because of pushing away the anti-structure or or wanting to push it away or uh, why is that? Well, uh, I think, well, that's a, a whole new area. But first of all, I, I, uh, I have been thinking a lot about this. And it's not necessarily more authoritarianism, but there's a, a greater polarity or polarization of opinions. Mm. And I think that's pretty clear. Well, when certain types of boundaries start to dissolve and groups start to merge, other divisions will start to manifest. And I think that's what we're seeing. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the symptoms might very well, you can see it, I don't know if you're familiar with the intellectual dark web, Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Joe Rogan, uh, Dave Rubin, and the like. I have heard of it, I'm not familiar with it. Uh, the only name I okay. find out, of, that I know out of there is uh, is Rogan, obviously, because he's he's very, uh, he's prominent public figure. Right. Well, these other people are becoming very prominent as well. And within the academic world, there is a culture war going on. Mm-hmm. And these are some of the people who are articulating the culture war and the issues involved. And within the academic world, there is this political correctness, this not just liberal but a very extreme leftist position, and people are reacting to that. If you see the rise of Antifa, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the responses, you can see what's happening in the UK. Well, there was Brexit. Britain was pulling apart from the EU. We're seeing the same thing with the, the, uh, the election of Donald Trump. People are getting more polarized. Well, there is this idea, primarily from elites, that everyone should be all, all the same, or we, we should be able to transcend these uh, racial divisions and economic divisions and the like. Well, there's inherently, in the human condition, imbalances. There's inequality. Some people are smarter, some people are stronger. That's just the nature of what we've got. Right. To deny that, then people will, and trying to, trying to make people all in one group or more homogeneous, that's not likely to happen. Other groups and other divisions are likely to form. I think that's just the nature of humanity and the nature of structure. It will become, it will impose new divisions 
and new polarities will arise. Some of those might not be terribly uh, beneficial. Now, yeah. one of the one of the big issues today is transgender. Yeah, and it. I have friends who are transgender. I have a great deal of respect for them. And if you look historically, those people have played very, very important roles in religion and spirituality. Hmm. And they've had very, and in my lectures, I go into that in much more detail. Uh, So I think in some ways, the rise of transgender is sort of a symptom. And these people might have some very good insights as to how we, we move in the world and what changes might be undertaken, but it's largely a symptom. And so we have to look at, start thinking about, okay, what's wrong with this society and what is working right? And if we're not, if we're only going to be critical of the society, well, that can be very dangerous as well. We have to have a balance. Okay, what, what is Western civilization doing right and what is, what things can we do, we improve more effectively? Mm-hmm. So there is, and I, I'm not articulating this very well, but there is this ongoing debate, and the people I mentioned I think are very much part of that, and there's, there are other groups, there's a Heterodox Academy that Jonathan Haidt is involved with, and in the academic world, they're typically you know, a decade or two ahead of the mainstream culture. They're very forward-thinking, they're very creative, uh, and so looking at the academic world can give us some idea of where we might be going in the future, mm-hmm. and C- even today. Culturally, yeah. Yes. Uh, it's funny you, uh, we, we talk about this, because uh, one of my other questions, did you hear the uh, interview with Diana Walsh-Pasolka? You, you know who she is, right? Oh, yeah, yes. I've been in touch with Diana for several years. Oh, okay. I, did, uh, I, I, I should have figured that. Um, but uh, a lot of her writing right now is about uh, media and entertainment and how technology is becoming the belief system or, you know, at least kind of heavily mediating it. Do you think this, that this might be from a loss of, uh, of uh, recognizing magic and liminality or, um, or anti-structure and accepting it? Uh, uh, I was thinking when you just said, when we were talking just now about politics, about tolerance, people don't use that word anymore. It's either one or the other. It's not... It's not tolerating, meaning I, I recognize your difference, and whether I accept it or not, I can live with it and let you do what you want to do, and I'll do what I want to do, and maybe we can you know, meet in the middle. But um, it seems like the, that the, uh, we're forced by our media and technology into uh, one, or, one or another camp. Um, yeah, getting back to Diana, just going to... Kind of free I'm sorry. That was here. that was all yeah, over the no, place. I'm sorry, yeah, George. Yeah. Well, well. When, when you get into these fields, yes, that's that's what happens really quickly. Uh, Diana, uh, in for her doctoral dissertation, uh, discussed Martin Heidegger, who's a very well-known philosopher, rather controversial, mm-hmm. and he talked a lot about technology. Another person who has done from a very different angle is Jason Giorgiani, who wrote the book Prometheus and Atlas, also a Heidegger scholar. Mm-hmm. So, And Jason Giorgiani has been involved with paranormal topics for a while, and that book uh, discusses it. So we're seeing a rise of some very new ideas here. And uh, neither Jason nor Diane have a really long-term involvement with the field. They're very bright people. Both of them are very bright. I disagree with Jason on quite a number of issues, but I agree with him on some. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same with Diana. So it's, I think it's a very, very fertile time, and we'll see what emerges. I, I think Diana's work uh, 
with uh, in, in the Vatican is very very interesting. Right. Uh, she was looking at a bilocating nun. Uh, did you cover that or not? Yes, I think we did about the. I think she was called the blue nun, the one that, uh, from New Mexico. Yes, that she. Uh, she bilocated from Spain, and a number mm-hmm. of people observed her. Now, did she tell you where that occurred? Uh, the geographical place it occurred? Yes. Uh, I think she said it was near Albuquerque, but I don't think we got any more specific well, than that. Okay, well, yes, that's very interesting. Yes, she's been very coy on that. If you look at the history, you can go uh, the history of Mary of Greta. Uh, she appeared in Socorro. Ah, yes, yes, very close to the Socorro case, you know, the Lonnie Zamora case. Right. Now, this is very interesting because, as you probably remember, Ray Stanford was one of the, was the primary investigator in that case. Right. And Ray wrote a whole book. Civilian, anyway, yeah. And, yes, and he had found some metal fragments on the stone, and take, took those to be analyzed, and those were stolen from him. Right. Uh, from some government, I think it was a government agency. Uh, and Ray also had an interest in religious aspects of UFOs. And so here you've got maybe something like a portal area. Three to four hundred years ago, this nun was seen, and then we have this very impressive UFO case. Uh, this could be a very interesting connection mm-hmm. between religion and UFOs. Right. And, and Diana has not been <laughs> particularly forthcoming on this, but all you have to do is look up the name of the nun on via Google and look where she had been appearing in uh, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. It, it's Socorro. Yeah. So uh, that's a, a very interesting uh, account. There's some, I, I think her work will be very interesting to follow. Yeah, well, the uh, American Cosmic will be out in, I think, sometime before the end of this year. And I've got this idea, on the one hand, it'll be extremely disruptive to a lot of people and also will be one of those books where people look back on it in, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years and say, well, that's one of the ones you should read if you want to know what's going on or what went on. Because that, that's changing. People, there, there's this idea that there is the, the holy uh, object, the holy metal from the, you know, from the, uh, from the, from the UFO, and how that, that has become part of the, uh, the, the focus of what a lot of people are interested in now, not on... Not as much on an abduction or a, uh, or more stories of you know sightings or whatever, but this, but actually having a physical part from supposedly something that's unearthly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole a- analysis of the metal fragments has been very intriguing, but we don't have any in-depth, detailed reports that I'm aware of. No, not publicly. Uh, I think uh, Jeremy Corbell is doing some interesting work, uh, but I'd like to see a lot more public, and we're not seeing that, as far as I know. Yeah, I, I think that's because he just kind of plays that. I, I talked to him. I think I'm going to have him on the show, actually, here in a month or so. Um, Good. Yeah, and I'm going to ask him about some of this. He plays some of this close to his chest, and he actually mentioned this on on Facebook the other day. <laughs> he basically, I think he's frustrated with people. He's like, "Look, I can't tell you all this stuff right now because 
I've told people I won't talk about it. Um, and there was an argument back and forth. And, you know, I, I stuck my hand in there probably for no good reason. And I said, you can find things out from people that don't want you to use their name or wherever it came from. You can uh, do research and find by other means that they're basically leading you down the right path. Um, mm-hmm. And this thing about you have to tell us, you have to be completely open on this. I don't think, I'm sorry, but I don't think uh, ufology works like that. And it, it can't. The problem becomes when you start using it as an, you know, an ego fulcrum and saying, I know something you don't. Right. And I don't mm-hmm. think Jeremy's doing that. He's trying to produce films that reveal some of these things and get them out into the, you know, into the public discourse. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. That's another thing I've noticed, uh, George, is that I can't... I went through a period of being quite skeptical, and now I'm back into a period of trying to be a little bit more balanced, excluded middle about it, you see. I think most people go through that, especially if they stay in the field for any length of time. Yeah, I've seen it, and you don't really notice it when it's happening to you. And then I thought, oh, my God, I, you know, I went to a UFO conference, um, and I didn't want to go to a lot of the uh, lectures here, the last one, the International UFO Congress. But I had to because I got a press pass, and I was going to write it up. Um, so I went to these talks, and I, you know, you'd see the title, and I would think, I don't want to even hear that. And then I'd go there, and there'd be a lot of interesting things that the person didn't really, you know, the title doesn't address. Uh, a woman talked about, you know, some new physics from the aliens. Well, so what? Of course, you know, that this happens all the time. But then she started talking about alien writing, which really interests me. Hmm. And the fact that there are symbols that are given to people during experiences or their reported experiences, which mean a lot to them, but it's hard to get the, you know, anybody else to understand what these symbols mean. They, uh, she says they unlock all kinds of, information that is encoded in the symbol and to me that's quite interesting i don't really care if there's new physics from aliens what what i found interesting is that people think there are written forms of communication that um like a sigil or something like that that are unlocking Uh, Mm -hmm. unlocking Mm -hmm. parts of their uh understanding that can't be communicated verbally or in a written format except with this abstract symbol Yes, you see some of that those ideas in alchemy as well, mm, and right. I'm not sure what to, to, what to make of it. Uh, uh, it. I think it deserves a little bit more attention. I, it's not something I think I'm ready to delve into, though. But yes, yeah. these these ideas need to be out there. People need to be aware that people are thinking of these through, and we need more people looking at it. It's just uh, it, you you get too many filters on. Um, well, in any area of life, and it just starts closing you off to things, and you don't you don't realize it till you're you know you're you're fifty miles behind everybody else, and they've all moved on. Right. <laughs> you talk about groups breaking up and about people being um, affected by the trickster uh, influence archetype. Has this happened to you? How do you keep from going nuts, George? <laughs> uh... I'm not sure. I'm I'm naturally pretty skeptical, and I try not to get try to take a few breaks from this, and I try to keep in touch with uh, skeptics. I I get to skeptics meetings every once in a while. They those groups have not been doing don't seem to be as active and don't haven't been been addressing the paranormal as much as they used to. So uh, that's but I kind of like hanging out with them for a little while. Yeah, me too. And and I do uh, appreciate the skeptical magazines. Uh, 
but again, I'm, and I am also rather reclusive at times, and I think <laughs> that helps uh, because I am involved with uh, some local groups, and some of that gets really, really, really nutsy. <laughs> <laughs> and and I have friends who just now refuse to go to those groups and you know, because they get so nuts. Uh, and so I talk to them, and they warn me, okay, these people are. They don't even want to be involved with them because when you get into the conspiracy stuff, uh, as I'm sure you know, you just ha- and there's so much fake news out there. I just kind of throw up my hands. Okay, I I'm not going to spend my time trying to figure this out. Yeah. So uh, yeah, try to keep. I try to keep open lines of communication to a variety of people. I think that's probably the best. Uh, thing that I do that I can think of offhand. Skeptics, unbelievers, true believers, and the like. The, uh, the fact that you, you said that the, the, parent, the uh, skeptical groups had actually backed off a little bit, is that because I noticed that academia and science seems to be a little less prejudiced towards some of these things. It's not broken open completely, but it's uh, at least in, in areas where most people don't hear about, like, you know, research institutions, people in certain groups, certain uh, outliers, they seem to be a lot less um, prejudiced towards these things and interested in in finding out what's going on rather than putting it down. And that's becoming more public. Do you notice that too? Well, I notice that, but it's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, Basically because there is very little quality research done in parapsychology anymore. Uh, I, I checked with a friend of mine uh, who has been involved with parapsychology for some decades, and he, neither he nor I follow it really, really closely. Mm-hmm. But if you look around and if you tally up the number of full-time researchers in the U.S. who do laboratory-based research and publish it in refereed scientific journals, uh, do you have any guess as to the number of those people in this country right now? Uh, five? Yeah, it, it probably <laughs> five or less and maybe only one or two. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you compare it to the 1980s. There were probably 25 or 30 such people. Hmm. Uh, the number of journals being published is way down. The number of articles, if you go to the conventions, there is much, much less empirical research being reported. So there's really not much of a threat anymore. Back in the 1970s, when PSYCOP was founded, there was an enormous interest. There were many professors in U.S. universities carrying out research, involving their students in it, Mm -hmm. and it was a very productive time that went through the 80s, and the antagonism increased there. The number of skeptics group uh, uh, increased. There was activism within the universities against doing research in these areas. Now that the research is pretty much away, uh, there's, it's not considered much of a threat anymore. So the antagonism has dropped, so people might have a little more chance to do it. But there's very little being done at a mm-hmm. professional level. Mm. So uh, Maybe it's yes, just my point be, of view. 
by point of view and who well, I'm talking to, you know. <laughs> well, I, I, I think you're probably right. I think there are people who are willing to to try it right now because the 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 skeptics don't have quite the publicity that they once did. Mm-hmm. And, the and their organ- down. the Psychop organization has undergone considerable change in administration. I think it's now being led by a lawyer. Uh, was, well, yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> it actually does. It, either either the the, the committee for there, there's a, an umbrella organization, right? And I I haven't followed. I used to follow all that very very carefully and closely, but I don't anymore. But they the magazine, uh, the Skeptical Inquirer, publishes far fewer articles on the paranormal than they once did. Hmm. And they're usually much more cursory. The the people who were really, really good critics, and two I regard most highly in, the, in that group, were Ray Hyman and Martin Gardner. Mm-hmm. We don't have people of their stature and their competence right now that I've seen. Mm-hmm. What are you working on now that you're willing to talk about? What 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 is uh, coming up next? What are you you know What are you writing? Well, well, what's interesting to you the, now? Certainly on the transgender issue, but there's larger issues that uh, basically I go into the literature from 50 years ago and see how it's relevant mm. and what it, what what has been ignored in mainstream academic work that is relevant to the paranormal that could give us a lot of insight today. And I'm seeing a lot of that is totally neglected today in the academic world. So I'm looking at going back and looking at issues in uh, what's the structuralist approach uh, to society and in philosophy and the like. So I'm dealing at a much more abstract level, and so that requires me to read a lot more to gain ideas of, okay, where does this apply? Mm-hmm. So I'm not too ready to talk about it. Uh, I have made several presentations uh, at conferences, but I usually use a lot of visual aids to mm-hmm. convey my ideas, and mm-hmm. that really can't be done <laughs> over this kind of podcast, unfortunately. That's fine. Well, who's, uh, that leads to another question. Who, If somebody wanted to read uh, your book, what what else do you think they should read? What has affected your thinking? Who do you think are foundational for you and it doesn't okay that's a, you know it can be because uh, i know you've mentioned uh van Jenep and victor turner and what they wrote and that's something that paranormal people and ufologists would not even know about i didn't know about it that's right and, and they're largely <clears throat> neglected today uh they were pretty well known in the 1980s even into the 1990s and there's been a shift and one of the things i'm going to be writing about is why and how that occurred Mm-hmm. Uh, and the impli- and the implications for that. Uh, I, I think people start with a book I mentioned earlier, Synchronicity, Science, Myth, and the Trickster. It's an easy read, and it certainly opened a lot of uh, doors for me, just in ways to start thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, one of the things I spend a lot of time on is academia.edu, uh, where a lot of people publish or put their uh, formal uh, papers online, and I download those and read through those. I type in keywords. Okay, I'm interested in such and such topics. You know, maybe two topics put into Google, mm-hmm. uh, and then 
with the domain search on academia.edu, I find a lot that way. And just getting to libraries. I spend a fair amount of time just going through shelves in libraries, pulling down books and uh, uh, reading, finding out, okay, what's being done in, in a variety of areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, spiritualism, for one, has gotten a lot in the last 20 to 30 years. It has been a big increase in the number of academic works on the history of spiritualism and some of those ideas, for mm-hmm. instance. Uh, the ordinary uh, person on the street will be completely unaware of it. Uh, so looking, there is an enormous amount of academic work that is highly relevant. People just have to get more familiar with that and start applying it. But that, uh, And most much of that is largely neglect. I've been finding, in the last month or two, I found two books that were published... 10 to 20 years ago that have remarkably good insights that almost no one cites. Which are? So, Well, I'm not going to name those yet. Okay. <laughs> uh, but there are people out there that have really some remarkable insight and they are what, almost completely neglected. Yeah, well, so, I'm I'm woefully ignorant of a lot of these things, which is why I have uh, people like you on the show to tell me where where in areas in which I'm ignorant, so I can <laughs> kind of catch yeah. up. You know, so you know that's what I I spend my time a lot surfing, a lot in libraries, and a whole lot of reading. Mm-hmm. And I and people like yourself who have this very wide background in the UFO and paranormal fields, you can start seeing patterns and i don't concentrate nearly so much on the phenomena themselves mm-hmm. i concentrate more on what's there or what happens around and what is not there what does not happen mm. what does not happen is you don't see scientific professional level groups getting involved why and has this happened before what happened before? What happened in the 1880s? Mm-hmm. Well, the 1880s, uh, the Society for Psychical Research was founded. Well, Sigmund Freud was a member. Arthur Balfour was a member. He became Prime Minister of England. Uh, John uh, Venn was a member. Venn Diagrams. Mm-hmm. Marie Curie was a member. She won no, two Nobel Prizes. Yeah. One in chemistry and one in physics. She was a member. Uh, William Gladstone was a member. He was uh, Prime Minister of England four separate times. Robert Louis Stevenson was a member. Mm-hmm. Henry Bergson uh, won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, Lord Rayleigh won the Nobel Prize for Physics. And Charles Richet won the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine. All three of those people served as president of the society. You would think that with that type of membership and leadership, we would have a very viable ongoing program for a very long time. That didn't happen. These people were very committed. Some of these people published extensively on psychic phenomena and related topics, and it has been forgotten. Mm -hmm. Why? I think this tells us a lot about the nature of the phenomena and society today. Right. So that did not happen in spite of the fact that all of those people were directly involved with psychic research. What else is not happening? Mm -hmm. Well, today you don't see studies of these phenomena in the academic world. You do not see them in ordinary modern 
big corporations. You don't see much in government. There's, there's undoubtedly some operational uh, work being done. I know that. Uh, is there much scientific research being done uh, clandestinely? Perhaps. I don't know. Uh, you don't see that in uh, educational institutions. There are almost no places you can go to get much training in parapsychology. You, you, there used to be. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you don't see that now. This tells us something very important. And understanding that requires a perspective that's much broader than just parapsychology or UFO research. Mm -hmm. Right. It, I'm sorry, are you going to go ahead? I've, I've, no, I, go ahead. Is there anything you wanted to ask me about, that uh, one, that I didn't ask, that you think is important to understand your work, and two, is there anything you wanted to talk to me about um, uh, out of anything you read in my book? Well, some of the things in your book we probably should do off the air. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. I understand completely. So, uh, uh, no, I'm not sure what else to recommend. I do have a web page, and a number of my papers are there also... I'm on academia.edu, and I have. There are several of my publications that are, I think, about six, six or seven years old, which are pr relatively easy to absorb. I think uh, they're academic, uh, okay. but they're not too difficult. And I have a paper on my website, uh, "Ghosts and Liminality." Mm -hmm. uh, that's just a few pages long, and I think it might give people some kind of introduction to the concept of liminality. I've gone well beyond that, but there's nothing I'd particularly retract. I would change a few things. Yeah, uh, that always happens. But but this whole concept, there are a few places that you do find discussions of liminality. One of those is in gender studies which I mm. think is very interesting. Yeah. And there have been some very interesting gender studies people over in the UK. Uh, Sally Munt, in particular, has helped produce an encyclopedia, uh, uh, Ashgate Guide to Research in Paranormal Cultures. And that volume is quite expensive, unfortunately. But it has some very innovative and new kinds of thinking about things. I think that is a very good sign and I think it is much more promising than the work being produced by the Parapsychological Association, which has been in existence much, much, uh, much longer. So there are people on the outside uh, that are commenting uh, outside of parapsychology who are doing research mm -hmm. outside of the typical uh, assumptions and uh, categories that have been used in the past. So I think there, there is hope. But it's people on the margins. Yeah, I, that's what I uh, something I was uh, been talking about for a while. If if some of this stuff is going to be changed, especially in ufology, which is kind of my, I guess that's my interest, is that s some of these breakthroughs, or at least new ideas, or old ideas, as you say, that people have uh, forgotten, those are going to come from outside the community, and th that will affect how we think about and examine the unknown at hand. Uh, and people generally ignore those things. They just concentrate on reading, you know, more more books about government cover-ups and and UFO porno, which consists of you know more more videos and sightings and all that. Right, right. I I, I agree. 
And yeah, the creatives are not going to follow the standard protocols. They're going to be different. Mm-hmm. And as such, they're going to be ignored by the the majority. That's how things work. Yeah. I know. I should have looked at these online articles. I just clicked on it while you were talking. There's two or three you've, you've co-authored with Jessica Utz, who's somebody I would like to talk to. And I've known her name for a long time. Another thing I noticed is that uh, she teaches at UC Irvine, which is like 50 miles from me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Another person, and at some point maybe I'd like to talk to her, uh, maybe have her on the show. Another person I want to have on the show that, that also teaches there. I didn't know Irvine was such a hotbed. Is, um, oh yes, it, uh, I went to. I took parapsychology courses there. Oh really, really? Yeah, nineteen in the nineteen seventies. Yes, I took uh, two courses there. That was new in the seventies because Irvine just became a community. I think in the early seventies. Yes, yes. It became a new city. Uh, Donald Hoffman is the other one. The uh, who wrote uh, Visual Intelligence. Um, the subtitle is uh, How We Create What We See, which I think is has a lot of relevance to especially the UFO subject, but maybe some of these other ones too. You know, what, what does the visual system do? How, does, how do we form a picture of the world um, immediately uh, through our nervous system? And, you know, what does that tell us about our nervous system and what it might be looking at? Because I think if we can pick apart um, the mechanism for seeing these things, which is us, maybe we'll have a little better, a better understanding of what that ineffable thing is when we examine the instrument that it's coming through, if that makes any sense. Well, I, I think it does. It's not my approach. Uh, that's more phenomenology, and it's sort of a psychobiological reductionistic approach, and yeah. that's not the direction I'm going. Uh-huh. But I think it's useful, and I think you should be aware of it, and there's probably some very interesting ideas there. Uh, but again, it's and I encourage people to go in that direction, but it's not the way I'm going right now. Right. Anyway. No, that's okay. Any, anybody that's an outsider uh, with, an, uh, with a view on these things is automatically interesting to me, whether I agree with them 100% or 5%. <laughs> uh-huh. well, the, one, of the, one of the minority people who I found really kind of stimulating is a guy named Henry Louis Gates, who ran the African American Studies program at Harvard, maybe still did, does. Um, he wrote oh, yeah, you mentioned him in the book. The signifying monkey, and he developed a, a theory of African American literary criticism mm-hmm. based on the trickster figure. So, he, and this was done in the eighties, really far in advance, I think. Uh, so, he, he would, and I've been finding more material in literature and in literary theory that is highly relevant. Mm-hmm. And again, this is something that most people wouldn't suspect would be. Uh, particularly relevant, but I'm seeing more a lot. So if you, if there's one area I I'm will admit I'm working in and studying, it's literary theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you go back and look at literature, and I've got some really great books talking about some of the insights that uh, the great authors had. It's pretty eye-opening. There were understandings of these phenomena that go back centuries that have been largely forgotten. Mm -hmm. We've uh, run out of time, but I think we have probably quite a lot to talk about in the future when I go through some more of your articles here, if that's all right. Great. The site is tricksterbook.com, 
And, and the book is The Trickster and the Paranormal. I urge anybody that is interested in this show, if you haven't read that book before or looked at uh, George Hansen's site, that you should do that. And uh, we'll talk again soon. And meanwhile, you said tubular bells. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, it, isn't tubular bells like, a, like an hour-long album that just goes? Well, well, no, you, you, it probably does, but it's a theme for, from The Exorcist. That's right, right. So just a, a little clip of that. Is kind okay, of you know what, I'll play some of that, and we will, um, I will uh, just let that run. And um, thank you so much for spending a couple hours with me. We've got probably another four or five hours of uh, discussion to have once we talk a little bit more, and I've, I've read more of your stuff, which I hope you will come back and uh and uh, agree to talk to me. Be very happy to. Great. Okay, thanks so much. Uh, you bet. I'll talk to you soon. Here we go.